Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, December 13th. In today's news, the House Judiciary Committee postpones its vote on the articles of impeachment until today. There's a handshake deal to avoid a government shutdown next week. And the White House says it reached a trade deal with China in principle that would dramatically scale back the tariffs. But first, the big idea. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has won a sweeping, decisive, and powerful majority of parliamentary seats and a mandate to deliver Brexit. Ballots tallied through the night affirmed that Johnson and his Conservative Party had achieved a smashing success, the largest win for the Tories since Margaret Thatcher prevailed a third time in 1987. The opposition Labour Party suffered its worst defeat since the mid-1930s. Friday morning, with just one constituency still to declare, the Conservatives have won 364 spots in the 650-seat Parliament. Labour's hard-left leader, Jeremy Corbyn, announced he will not lead his party in any future general election campaign, but said he intends to stick around for a little while during a period of reflection and transition. Johnson, the bombastic showman who led the campaign to leave the European Union back in the June 2016 referendum, is now positioned to be the prime minister to see Britain set sail from Europe next month. And dreams of a second referendum and of remaining in the EU have been dashed. President Trump, who made little effort to hide his partiality toward Johnson during the election, tweeted his congratulations. Johnson and the conservatives ran as populists, offering not only Brexit, but also a spending surge for cops, nurses, schools, and elder care. One of their strategies was to try to break through what's called labor's red wall of traditional support among the working class voters in faded industrial towns in England's North and Midlands. This strategy was a stunning success. The Tories won the town of Workington, for example. Workington has been held by labor without a blip since 1918. Voters there told our reporters they wanted Brexit and they didn't trust Corbyn. Johnson, this morning in his victory speech, specifically addressed voters who went conservative for the first time ever in this election. He promised he won't take their support for granted. With the conservatives primed to extend their reign from 2010 until 2024, assuming Johnson serves his full five-year term, Labor is looking at years in the wilderness. It was a grim night, too, for the anti-Brexit liberal Democrats, whose leader, Joe Swinson, lost her seat to a candidate from the Scottish National Party. Indeed, nationalist parties saw big gains in Scotland and Northern Ireland. In Brussels, EU leaders who had gathered for a previously planned summit stayed up late into the night to watch election results come in. Several said they just wanted to get Brexit over with. Perhaps surprisingly, more than one top diplomat told our correspondent in Brussels, Michael Birnbaum, that they're hoping for a robust majority for the eventual victor and not a hung parliament, as many of the British Remainers wanted. Privately, some diplomats who work on Brexit said a sweeping majority for pro-Brexit Johnson paradoxically could result in Britain staying more closely aligned with the EU over the long term than if he had weaker control of parliament. 
The diplomats reasoned that a big majority gives Johnson more flexibility to make compromises during what's likely to be a year of lightning-fast negotiations on a trade deal. If Johnson only had a few votes to spare, he would have been more vulnerable to be taken hostage by the Brexit hardliners who insist on the sharpest possible split from Europe. But perhaps that's wishful thinking. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, at 11.15 p.m. on Thursday night, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler delayed the planned vote to advance the two articles of impeachment against Trump until Friday. The committee is expected to pass them on party lines later this morning, and the full House is still on track to impeach the president next week. The decision ended an all-day debate as it began, with angry exchanges, personal insults, and recycled arguments about process. Republicans on the committee, who appeared blindsided by Nadler's decision to delay the vote, erupted in frustration. There was a lot of name-calling and insults from both sides during the 14 hours of rancorous debate, which followed four hours of debate the night before. Frustration had built for both parties over a month of tightly controlled hearings, where committee procedures restrained the partisan conflict just enough to keep the process moving. But Thursday's markup unfolded without these controls in an open format that allowed members a lot of time for spontaneous and sometimes downright nasty confrontations. For example, Congressman Cedric Richmond, a Democrat from Louisiana, told Republicans that they're betraying America the way Judas betrayed Jesus. Steve Chabot, a Republican from Ohio who served during Bill Clinton's impeachment, said the difference with Trump's was that President Clinton committed the crime of perjury. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, a Democrat from California who also served during Clinton's impeachment, replied that Trump had committed a far greater offense by trying to coerce Ukraine. Lofgren noted that Democrats did not try to impeach Trump when proof came out showing that he repeatedly lied and tried to conceal his hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, the porn star who says she carried on a sexual relationship with Trump while Melania was pregnant with their son. Number two. Top congressional negotiators announced yesterday afternoon that they have reached a deal to approve $1.3 trillion in federal spending for 2020, probably averting a government shutdown next week. The announcement from House Appropriations Committee Chairwoman Nita Lowy, a Democrat from New York, and Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Richard Shelby, the Republican from Alabama, came after Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin visited Capitol Hill midday to go over a final list of sticking points. The tentative agreement sets the stage for a remarkable sequence of events next week, with a presidential impeachment vote sandwiched between bipartisan deals on spending and the trade deal with Mexico and Canada. The House could vote on the spending bill as soon as Tuesday, with the Senate acting before the end of the week. But there's always the, the asterisk, which is that Trump has not yet sent a clear signal of support, even though congressional leaders have been encouraged by Mnuchin's eager participation in the talks. Trump, however, initially rejected a tentative 2019 spending deal that was negotiated on Capitol Hill last December, which is what plunged the federal government into the record 35-day partial shutdown. While some of the sticking points have definitely been settled, aides from both parties said negotiators will continue to try to resolve a number of minor issues before releasing the final text of an agreement in the coming days. Lowy and Shelby declined to discuss details when they were approached on Thursday afternoon. But one of the final obstacles was Trump's border wall, the very issue that sparked last year's record shutdown. And it's not clear what the final disposition of that is in this current spending deal. 
Speaking of the border wall, the Pentagon's inspector general announced yesterday that he is reviewing the $400 million border wall contract that was given to a firm run by a GOP mega donor and frequent Fox News guest whom Trump has repeatedly pushed military officials to hire. Glenn Fine, the top official at the Pentagon's IG office, authorized an audit after DOD announced a contract to build 31 miles of border barriers in an Arizona wildlife refuge. This was notable because the Army Corps of Engineers had previously rejected the company's bids as not up to snuff. Number three, Trump has approved a U.S.-China trade deal, raising hope to end a 21-month commercial conflict that has roiled financial markets, disrupted corporate supply chains, and cost American taxpayers tens of billions of dollars. At a White House meeting yesterday afternoon with his top trade advisors, the president signed off on a swap of U.S. tariff reductions in return for China committing to spend $50 billion on U.S. farm goods, tightening its intellectual property protections, and opening up its financial services markets. This is according to Michael Pillsbury, a China expert at the conservative Hudson Institute, who says the president personally briefed him on the deal. Then a senior administration official confirmed Pillsbury's characterization of the deal is accurate. The limited accord, for now, caps a roller coaster negotiation process that brought the two countries to the brink of success more than once this year, only to see talks then stall. Diplomats from the world's two largest economies have been working against a Sunday deadline when new U.S. tariffs on $160 billion in Chinese goods were scheduled to take effect. That increase now will not go forward, and existing tariffs on $360 billion in Chinese imports will be reduced, according to Pillsbury. The deal includes provisions that will penalize the Chinese government if it fails to buy the $50 billion in agriculture from the U.S. China's Commerce Ministry, interestingly, which usually releases news about trade talks, is notably silent. On Friday morning Beijing time, its media office has not responded to our team's calls and faxes regarding comments. Yes, our correspondents tried to fax them for comment when no one answered the phone. Believe it or not, sometimes sending faxes to Chinese ministries actually works and they respond to us. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, December 13th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.